This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, let's uh, take our Bibles and be turning again to the book of Romans. I've really enjoyed our study in the book of Romans, and uh, this morning we enter Romans chapter 5. We're going to begin looking at verses 1 through 11. This is going to be a two-part series, I guess you could say, that I've entitled simply this, We the People. We the people. And uh, we're just going to look at the first two verses of Romans 5 this morning, but I want to read the first 11 verses to provide for you the context because that's where we're going to end up eventually is looking at all these verses. Romans 5 beginning in verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's uh, very logical and theological argument really beginning all the way back in chapter 3, has been regarding the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. And now, Paul begins in chapter 5 with those words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified is simply a word that means we have been declared righteous by God. We have been declared righteous by God and in the sight of God. It is a standing, it is a status It is based upon the work of reconciliation through the cross. We stand in this grace, and as Paul has demonstrated with the example of Abraham, it is only appropriated, as he says here in verse 1, by faith. That is the only way anyone is ever justified or declared righteous. It is appropriated by faith, not by works. This has been Paul's point. You can think of it this way, and this is sort of a simple way to think about it, but in chapter 3... Paul has told us that justification is needful, that it's needful. Back in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And verse 23, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That describes to us the fact that justification is needful. Then, in chapter 4, he told us that justification is scriptural, that it's scriptural in chapter 4 and verse 3, for what does the scripture say? 
And Paul quotes the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So justification is needful because we're all sinners. Justification is scriptural. This has always been the means of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But justification is not only needful, and it is not only scriptural, thus saith the Lord. Now in chapter 5, he's going to tell us that justification is beneficial. It's beneficial to us. Here in chapter 5, he speaks about we the people. We the people of God have received so many blessings. He uses the first person plural pronoun in uh, verses 1 through 11, which really dominates this passage. It's the word we. Look at it with me. In verse 1, we have been justified. Verse 1, we have peace with God. Verse 2, we have also obtained access by faith. Verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Verse 6, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. Verse 8, God shows His love for us. Verse 9, we have now been justified. Verse 9, we shall be saved. Verse 10, while we were enemies. Verse 10, we are reconciled. Verse 11, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a shift in Paul's discussion. Paul began all the way back in chapter 1 with I. You remember that in verse 16 he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. He began with I, and then he transitioned to speak about they, or to you. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He's talking about the religious moralist who's trying to earn his way to heaven, and he judges everyone else based upon his own standards. So he goes from I... Uh, to, to you. He also speaks about they in chapter 3. The whole world is charged in God's, God's courtroom. He speaks in verse 13 of chapter 3 about their throat and their lips and their mouth and their feet and their paths and their eyes. We see that in verses 13 through 18. So he talks about I, he talks about you, he talks about they, and then in chapter 4 and verse 16, He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, the father of us all, we the people of God. And he's continuing to use that first person plural pronoun in chapter 5 with a series of we affirmations, as I read them to you. We have been justified. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled. We now have access. We, God's people, Paul is saying, have been justified. Now, if you're familiar with the preamble to the Constitution, it begins with we, the people. And it enumerates a desire to form a more perfect union. And it says that the people are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is sort of an easy analogy because in chapter 5, this is sort of the preamble to the Christian faith. We, the people, these we affirmations, what we have received because of the doctrine of justification. The difference is, Paul is talking about not what the people declare, but what God declares is true about us, what the rights and privileges are for our perfect union with Christ, 
What are our liberties? What are our privileges and our rights? He's speaking about the solidarity that is the oneness of God's people formed by this one covenant of grace which is emphasized throughout Romans. In the first half of chapter 5, he speaks about what Charles Hodge calls the inferences of justification. It's what Calvin calls the effects of justification. It's what John Murray calls the uh, privileges, I think is what he calls it, or the consequences of justification. William Hendrickson, the fruits of justification. I like uh, the terminology of results or benefits, and even better than that, the blessings of justification. What are the blessings of justification? Paul outlines that in, ver- in verses 1 through 11. In the second half of chapter 5, Paul continues to speak about the solidarity of God's people, but he turns to the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we are all found. Because we are in Christ, we receive all of these rights or blessings. We were in Adam, right? And we received and deserved the judgment of God. But now we are in Christ. We are one with Him. He is the federal head of this covenant. He is the federal head of His people. He represents us before God. So this is very Christ-centered. This is very grace-oriented. This is the best you will find in all of Scripture. Romans 5 is probably my favorite chapter, and in particular, verses 12 through 21. But we want to begin with verses 1 through 11. And really what is considered the doctrinal section of Romans, right? Chapters 1 through 11 is the doctrinal section. Chapters 12 and following are the practical section. But even in this doctrinal section, the middle of it, he gives to us assuring realities for the believer to rejoice in. These are immensely practical. In fact, he uses the word rejoice three times. Verse 2, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Imagine that. And then verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. So this is about rejoicing. That is why John Murray in his commentary asked the question, what are the consequences flowing from justification, which evoke such unrestrained rejoicing and assurance. And then John Murray says, well, we have to break apart the text to see that. And that's what we want to do this morning. When I was uh, earning my doctorate under Dr. Steve Lawson, he used to always tell young preachers that you always have to ask yourself the question when you're preparing a message, so what? We as Reformed people are doctrinal by nature. Scripture is doctrinal by nature. But the question must be asked, so what? What does this mean for you? Well, some texts don't say. It's just implied. But in this text, God has blessed us this morning with verses that tell us the so what of justification. It is the rejoicing assurance for the believer in a fate accompli in a faith that has been accomplished and finished for us by Christ. This is historical. From time to time I hear people say history is boring, and I always cringe at that because for the Christian, everything that we are and everything that we have is based on the historical fact of the finished work of Christ's redemption. Therefore, we better care about history. The Bible is the only inspired record of history. And in verses 1 through 11, in today's text, we find God telling us 
through His Holy Spirit, six glorious blessings of His finished work of redemption. More specifically, in light of justification, as Christians, therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, Paul says we have reason to rejoice with great assurance, with great assurance, because of these six glorious blessings flowing from the cardinal doctrine of justification. So I want you to leave this morning understanding we emphasize doctrine here at this church, but we also emphasize the practical application of this doctrine. That's why you have at the bottom of the sermon notes some quotations from the book of James, which remind us that we are to be doers of the word of God. This morning, I'm not asking you to do anything except reflect upon the blessings that are yours now. And we're just going to look at three of them. There are six of them, and we'll have to pick up next time when we come back on the final three. What are these six glorious blessings? Well, let's begin with the first one. The first one is that we, the people of God, we, the people of God, have peace with God. We have peace with God, the second half of verse 1. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... Paul says, we, the people, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is telling us here that this peace is a straightforward peace. He says, we have peace with God. That's in the present tense because it is a present reality for all of those, verse 1, who have been justified in the past. We now have peace with God in the present. Scripture is straightforward about the peace that we have now in the present. It's also clear and straightforward, though many deny it today, that we are not only at war with God, which is why we need peace, but that God is at war with us. God is at war with us apart from Christ. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We were enemies of God. Chapter 8 and verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is hostility. And Paul even opened up his letter reminding Christians back in chapter 1, if you remember that far back, in verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's peace that we have, and therefore Paul declares and gives to the church But he also warned us in chapter 2 and verse 10 that this glory and honor and peace is only for everyone who does good. And Paul has been clear that no one does good, right? There is none righteous, no, not one. So we are at war with God. And what Paul is saying here very straightforwardly is that now we have peace with God. That is what is rooted in our justification. There is an infamous photo in the annals of world history of Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of England. And it's a picture of him after he negotiated peace with Hitler at the Munich conference. And he's proudly leaning over a balcony and he's telling the people, we have achieved peace in our time. Well, that was only partially true because Hitler had hoodwinked Chamberlain. At that very moment, he was mobilizing his army for the Blitzkrieg into Eastern Europe. Chamberlain had signed the Munich Agreement, and on September 30th, 85 years ago yesterday, he made the remarks about peace in our time. Interestingly, there was a passage um, in the Book of Common Prayer, which belongs to the Church of England, a translation from a 7th century hymn, which reads, Give peace in our time, O Lord, because there is none other than 
God that fights for us, only you, God. Well, it's true, and I don't know if Chamberlain had that passage on his mind. It's true that God fights for his saved people, but the other reality is that he was fighting against us before we were justified. We needed peace with him. And the Bible is straightforward about that, regardless of what you may think and what other people may tell you. The only peace for our time, to quote Chamberlain, is found in Christ. And this is real, straightforward, present peace. The treaty has been signed in Christ's blood, and God the true King has made this factually accurate declaration, peace, but only peace in Christ. So it is straightforward peace that Paul speaks about with God, but it is also upward peace. Being at peace with God, as verse 1 says, tells us that we were hostile to God even as He was hostile to us. Don't think about the fact that God was on the defensive. No, God was on an offensive campaign against us. So Paul says we have peace with God. This is upward peace. This is peace with a God who is angry with us. Psalm 711, God feels indignation on all the wicked every day. So if you're not a child of God, Jesus said, John 844, you are a child of the devil. You're on the wrong team. You're in the, own, you're the wrong army. Matthew 1230, whoever is not with me is against me. Romans 118, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That is upward. It comes from heaven, our upward enemy, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This wrath of God is unleashed. So forget about what the world thinks and focus upon what God knows and what His Word tells us because it is very, very easy to be deceived. And that is why Paul said, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Scripture describes God at war with us. We have an upward enemy. He is a warrior in the Old Testament who has bent his bow whose chariots come to trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. And God even describes himself in Exodus 15.3 as a man of war. A man of war. But beautifully, you remember what Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What was Jesus saying? He was saying that he came to bring peace. Upward peace with God who is holy. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this peace with God is straightforward. It is upward. It is also downward. Being at peace with God is the result of the Prince of Peace who came down from heaven We have peace with God because of what God did in sending His Son, the Prince of Peace. It's a downward, sovereign work of God that He gives Christ to us. Notice again in verse 1, we have peace with God through, dia, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way. Peace comes through our Lord Jesus Christ who came down Chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. But he had to come down before he could go back up to be our great high priest. So we didn't negotiate peace with God. 
We didn't hold up the white flag and surrender. Isaiah 53 says all of us like sheep of what? We have turned astray. We have turned away from God. God had to come down and conquer us. He had to come down and conquer sin, death, and the devil. He came to war with us. It is a downward peace. Have this attitude or mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ, Philippians 2, 5, that although He was God and existed in the form of God, He humbled Himself and became a man. Downward He came. And He reconciles us to God. He found a way through justification to make us right with Himself. You can't speak about the doctrine of justification without also speaking about the doctrine of reconciliation, which is mentioned later in this passage. Reconciliation removes wrath and restores divine favor. What does Hebrews say? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That is an act of God of reconciliation. In the book of Colossians, Paul put it this way, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, that is Christ, He came downward, we could say, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you were enemies doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before Him. So Christ came downward so we could have upward peace with God and be reconciled. So Paul's focus in verse 1 is about the objective peace of God that comes by way of the fact of our justification. It is upward peace with God. It is straightforward peace in the present. And it is downward peace because Christ had to come and do something to make our reconciliation a reality. But what is doctrinally true and objectively true because of justification is also subjectively and experientially true. And that means this peace is number four, inward peace. Being at peace with God also means we have peace within. John Calvin says, This peace means tranquility of conscience, which arises from this, that it feels itself to be reconciled to God. That's an amazing statement from a Reformed guy. You're telling me that Reformed people have feelings? Well, I guess Calvin did. He describes the peace of verse 1 as tranquility of conscience which the believer feels. I hope that you feel justified this morning because you are if you've been declared righteous. It's not just an objective reality. It is a subjective inward feeling. Now, our justification is not based in any way. It is not grounded in any way on feelings. But true justification does produce feelings of inner tranquility, as Calvin calls it. Because we know if we are truly the people of God, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We know what He said about us. He has declared us righteous in spite of our guilt of sin. So the world may laugh at us. Other people may slander us and say negative things about us. But what they say doesn't matter. What does God say? And when you're reminded what God says about you, that you've been declared righteous... That will get you out of any spiritual slump you might be in and make you feel better. Jesus was punished in your place. That's justice. Justice was meted out on Christ. Jesus was punished in your place and God forgave you. He gave you what you didn't deserve, which is mercy. And that is why John Murray says that when the believer sees justice, 
meted out on Christ and mercy given to us by God, embracing each other, then the believer has a peace which passes all understanding. Philippians 4, and um, sorry, this isn't John Murray, it's Charles Hodge. He calls this inner peace the sweet quiet of the soul. So the inner tranquility of conscience, John Calvin, the sweet quiet of the soul, Charles Hodge, is this inward peace. Jesus was punished in your place so you could have peace in your soul and in the midst of your problems. This is immensely practical. Isaiah 53, he bore our sins and he carried our what? He carried our sorrows. He carries our tears in a bottle. And he drank it down and suffered the wrath of God so you could be at peace this morning. And I hope you feel that peace. Reformed people have feelings. And we feel at peace with God. That is a sign of a true believer. And we're going to see how that works out later in the passage. But peace is flowing from this justification because it's inward. It also has to be outward. That's number five, outward peace. Being at peace with God brings peace to us in the midst of trials. And we'll just take a peek at this, even though we're not supposed to, because we're not to these verses yet. But verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in what? Our suffering. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How can you have that inward peace? Well, because you know you've been declared righteous, and that inward peace overflows into outward peace in the midst of suffering and trials and tribulations. Why? Verse 6, because while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, scarcely for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us so that we can have peace now in the present with our outward trouble. Paul will go to great lengths to describe this experiential peace. He says, For I am sure, later in Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth can you think about anything else? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we have peace with God. This is a straightforward peace flowing from justification. It's something you are experiencing now. It's upward peace. It's peace with an almighty powerful God. It's downward peace. It comes from Christ and through Christ because He left His throne in heaven and came down here. It is inward peace, the inner tranquility of conscience, the sweet quiet of the soul. It is outward peace in the midst of tribulation. And we could also say it's sideward peace. Being at peace with God brings us into peaceful relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul will pick up on this later in Romans. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Paul will say this in verse 9, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now what does that mean? Well, Paul says, I'll tell you, verse 10, Love one another with brotherly affection. And not only that, but outdo the, one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. With all. And what does he say in verse 20? If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him drink. By so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, that is amazing. 
Why does this seem to be so hard for Christians? Well, the answer is in verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. If you don't live out of your peace with God, then you won't experience peace with others. It's this rejoicing, even in the midst of trials and tribulations, because you know you're at peace with God, that encourages you to be at peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I am amazed because some Christians seem to never be happy unless they're fighting with someone, usually other Christians. And I always ask myself, why do Christians struggle with this? Well, it's because they don't trust the process that God has placed us in. When he says in our passage in verse 3 that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We rejoice in that. My greatest trials are not with things, it's with people. People are trouble. People require a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of long-suffering. And people get so fixated on the issues down here that they forget who they're going to spend eternity with up there, namely some of the same people they criticize and malign. We have a chat feature at the soccer club that I coach at, which sends communication out to the teams regarding games and all that sort of thing. And every now and then, there's a parent that gets a little bit out of hand and begins making comments on there publicly that should not be said. Criticizing other players, criticizing the coach, criticizing the club. And on one occasion, I got on that chat after things were said, and I publicly rebuked this parent. And it turned into a chat that was filled with fury. The result of that was the parent being kicked out of the club because of the inappropriate things that they said and maligning and slandering members of their own team. Paul says in Romans 12, if it's possible, live at peace with all people. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes you have to say things. Sometimes you have to take a stand. But what... Paul is saying here is that we have the opportunity for sideward peace with others because justification fixes everything. This peace with God fixes all problems. It's lasting peace. It's peace that endures trials. It's peace with our enemies. It's peace that forgives. It's peace of heart, peace of mind, peace of soul, the inner tranquility of the feeling of being made right with God, the sweet quiet of the soul that says, I'm going to love my enemy in spite of what they do. Now, this is not merely peace that is peace with God. It is peace with God that then gives to us all these other sorts of elements of peace, inward and outward and even sideward. And that peace only comes through Christ. I want you to understand that this morning. This first blessing of justification, this peace with God, doesn't come by any other way. It is received by faith. We are justified by faith, verse 1, and therefore have peace with God. But you cannot have any peace in this life, in the life to come, inward or outward, apart from having peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have Christ, you have the Prince of Peace and you will have peace. It doesn't mean you're not going to have problems. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trials. But in the midst of that, 
You will have calm in the midst of the storm. That's what Paul is getting at. The gospel is immensely practical. The doctrine of justification is immensely practical for your life because what the Bible is telling you this morning, what flows from the doctrine of justification is peace with God, which means you can have peace in every area of your life. But there's a second blessing that flows from justification. Not only do we the people have peace with God, but we the people have access before God. Just the beginning of verse 2, notice your Bibles. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Acceptance before God and access to God are both granted as a result of justification. Notice that phrase again, we have also obtained access. Now this doesn't mean that Paul is giving a nod to us Because of something we've done, we haven't obtained it. Because notice what he says before that. He says in verse 2, through him we have also obtained access. In case we've forgotten, he already said it in verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says again, through him, through him alone we have also obtained access by faith. It comes to us merely as something we receive as a gift. Verse 2, it is by faith, and that is why it is all of grace. That's why Paul says, into this grace in which we stand. So we could say three things. We have obtained access. We haven't earned it. We have received it by faith. We haven't achieved it. And we therefore stand in this grace, being propped it up by the power of God. We can also say three practical things about this access before God. First of all, this access is pictured throughout the Bible, throughout the pages of the Old Testament, going all the way back to the garden. As God's image bearers, Adam and Eve, prior to sin, had unlimited access to God. They ran to God for fellowship, but after sin, they ran away from God. And you remember they were aware of their nakedness for the first time. They were ashamed. God had an animal sacrificed, and with the skins of that animal, He clothed them to cover their nakedness, and mankind experienced spiritual death. Genesis 2.17, and the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But God was merciful. He covered them with the skins of the animal to cover the nakedness and the shame that they experienced, and He postponed their physical death. Adam lived a long time, some 900 years. They were covered with the skins but they were prohibited from free and full access before God. Remember, the angel guarded the garden with a flaming sword, prohibiting full and free access to his garden. And if you just fast forward throughout Scripture, this theme comes up, that there's no access to God. This was forbidden. Even later in Exodus, when the people of God were given the law of God and instructions were given, the blueprints for the tabernacle and later the temple, it was clear that God's Shekinah glory dwelt in the innermost sanctum, the holy of holies, separated from the rest of the worship center by a veil. And only on the day of atonement could one man and one man alone, the great high priest, enter that holy of holies and he didn't enter empty-handed. He entered with the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed for the sake of the people and he sprinkled that blood on the ark which within that ark was the law of God that that the people of God had broken. He sprinkled it on the lid or the mercy seat to atone for sin. Some believe, although Scripture doesn't say, that the high priest had a rope attached to his leg with a bell attached to that because you remember, for example, Nadab and Abihu, 
I think that's who it was. They offered strange fire to God and they were struck dead. So you didn't mess around in the Holy of Holies. So many people think there was a rope, tradition says, with a bell attached. And when the bell stopped ringing, that meant the guy had fallen dead. Uh, Basically, he retired. God retired him. And you couldn't go in there because he was the only one allowed in there. So they just pull his dead body out. Once again, the idea of limited access was being pictured. But on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ offered his bloody body at the altar of Calvary, you remember the earthquake shook. Matthew 27, 51 tells us about this. And the veil in the temple rent. And it didn't rent from bottom to top as if a priest did it. It rent from top to bottom. This was an act of heaven. It was an act of God. He was making a statement. The statement was there is now full and free access through Christ and through his death. And this great high priest, this mediator, although he was struck dead at Calvary, rose three days later from the dead. He entered the heavenly sanctuary in the heavenly holy of holies, giving his people, representing them and giving them full and free access to the Father. And it's not because God became unholy so that we could enter. No, we became holy. Our status was changed based upon predestination and eternity past and justification in the present. Paul reminds us of this if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And we're talking about blessings this morning. Verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be what? Holy and blameless before Him. That was the goal of redemption. That was the goal of justification. And it took place in eternity past. And the secret corridors of eternity past and the halls of eternity and the mind and the heart of the Trinity, this glorious covenant, predestination, this choosing and electing of the people of God. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to sons to Himself through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So that now we have full and free access. That's what verse 2 is speaking about. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace and we stand before God with a holy status because we've been clothed with the righteous garments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of my greatest uh, memories as a child was at church camp. My father um, loved church camp as a kid, so when he became a man in his uh, later 20s, church camp had fallen by the wayside, and uh, so in the church that two of my great-great-grandfathers had started, my dad um, began church camp, and he was the director of church camp, and I used to go with him as a little kid and sleep in his bunk with him and hang out with all the older kids, and it was just an awesome thing. But then the day came for me to go to church camp, and I was old enough to go, and I remember on one occasion we're there in the chapel, and uh, Today, uh, we're not going to have anyone preach a sermon. Instead, we brought this fellow in, and he is a great artist. And we're going to turn some music on, and he is uh, going to paint a picture. He's going to paint a picture of Jesus at Calvary. And you're going to sit here and just experience the wonderful vibes of what it was like to be at Calvary. I remember thinking as a 10-year-old, after everyone talked, all the counselors, all the kids, oh, what a wonderful experience this was. Oh, I just felt the, the Holy Spirit as he colored with his paintbrushes on the canvas. And I remember thinking, I wish the guy would just open his mouth and preach a sermon. I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear the truths 
that my sins are forgiven. I, I want to hear what the Bible says. And throughout the Bible is this picture. It's the colorful picture of God's words that we have no access before God apart from Christ. But praise God, because of Christ, we have full and free access. And that's why later in Romans 5, Paul refers to Jesus as the last Adam because he's given us, verse 2, access. He's introduced us to God. Really, you could say he's reintroduced us to our Father. We were created in his image. That image was marred. Fellowship was broken. We were at hostility with God. We were alienated from God. But because of Christ, we've been reconciled, reintroduced to the Father. He brought us home. He brought us to the holy temple, right into the presence of God in the grace in which we stand today. That is why Calvin in his commentary says that Paul teaches us by the word access in verse 2 that salvation begins with Christ. He is the entry point. He is the turnstile into the kingdom of God. You can't get in apart from Christ. But this access before God is not only pictured, it's also permanent. That phrase, into this grace in which we stand. In other words, we are, we can never get out of it, we are in a permanent and perpetual state of justification. That's what Paul's talking about. We're in a state of grace, a state of justification, a a state of being declared righteous, and our footing is sure, it's steadfast. That's why he says we're, we're standing, we're being propped up. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He pleased to the Father through His blood, to give us access, through His sprinkled blood. And so this picture, this imagery comes up throughout the Bible. The author of Hebrews is the best at it. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, that's access through the curtain, that is the veil, through His flesh, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Those Old Testament sacrifices were pictures that represented the permanent status of being holy and standing in grace. And throughout the Bible, this permanent access is pictured even in stories that maybe we're not always so familiar with, like in the book of Esther. You're familiar with this. Maybe you've heard it in Sunday school. She was a Jewish woman exiled in Persia. And the king of Persia sought her as his bride. He made her his queen. But shortly after she became the queen, it was revealed that a plot had been hatched to exterminate all the Jews in the land. And the king really wasn't aware that he was being hoodwinked. And unknowingly, he signed a decree meaning the extermination of all the Jews in Persia. And you remember the story well. It was Esther's uncle, Uncle Mordecai. He was her guardian. He was a godly man, jealous for God, jealous for the people of God. And he said, you know what? This extermination is going to go through unless you do something. You need to go before the king. You're his wife after all. But understand that according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, that was suicidal. No one requested an audience with the king. The king was the one who requested who he wanted to see. And there were no exception clauses in the laws of the Medes and Persians. It didn't matter that it was his wife and that she was the queen. And the reality was that she could go before the king, but only if he extended his golden scepter, which was a symbol of his power and his authority, would that mean that he would accept her and embrace her and not kill her. And she knew this was serious, so she prepared for three days and she fasted before God. I cannot imagine the anxiety she must have felt 
but she knew she had to go before the king and tell him of this plot. She dressed herself in beautiful robes. She stepped into the king's presence, and the Bible is clear that because of her beauty, he extended his scepter. And she got from the king what she needed, her life and the life of her people spared. Beloved, that is a beautiful picture of the fact that we have access to the Father. We have not been zapped and burnt down to a crisp because we stand in grace because Jesus and His beautiful righteousness before the Father is our intercessor, is our great high priest. Even this morning, the only reason your words in worship are not blasphemy is because Jesus is speaking even as you speak to the Father pleading for us. And the Father sees the beauty of Jesus' righteousness and He accepts us as we are even though we still have sin, because Jesus paid the debt. He provides this full and free access to God. You know, Paul will bring this up again in chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn us? Paul asks, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says, He ever lives to intercede for us. Jesus um, gave a nod to this in his great high priestly prayer. I love this passage. Jesus says, but now I'm coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The joy that the believer has, which dominates this passage, is a joy that is rooted in the intercessory prayers of Jesus Christ. He goes to the Father The joy comes to us. And because He ever lives to intercede for us, verse 2, we have access by faith into this grace, this position we have in Christ in which we stand. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2 just for a moment. Paul can't help but speak about this continually. This access, chapter 2 of Ephesians verse 18, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is an amazing passage which speaks about the fact we are the temple of God. We are even now in the presence of a holy God We stand in grace. He receives our worship. In Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness, there's the word again, and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Back again to Romans 5 and verse 2. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this access comes by faith. It's pictured throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, culminating in Christ. It is permanent. It is a grace in which we stand. And I just want to say this, it's also productive. Now, this third little point is not found in the text other than by way of implication. What does this access before God practically mean for us? Well, I've sort of said it already, but it gives to us boldness to come before God in prayer and boldness to come before God in praise or in worship. This is what the author of Hebrews means 
when he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have the confidence and the boldness to come before God in prayer and ask Him for more than even salvation. To ask Him for protection from our enemies. To ask us for strength to get through our trials. He is our mediator. He is our great high priest. He is praying for us so we can pray to the Father. The prayers of Jesus are heard. Therefore, our prayers are heard and we have this confidence. It produces a confidence in us. This access does to to pray to God, but it also produces what we could call praise and worship. And this is what the author of Hebrews means, I believe, when he says this. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. R.C. Sproul says on that passage that it's about worship. He says, and I quote, We come to the presence of God, and we have access to His presence. There is no more veil. The angel's sword of flame has been doused with the blood of Christ, and He welcomes us into His presence in worship. And I don't know about you, but that is why I made the remarks I made before my sermon The joy of being part of a church that knows how to worship rightly. Let me ask you a question. When you came to this church, did anyone give you a seminar on how to worship? Did anyone sit down with you and say, now this, this is how you worship. Let me, let me teach you. Let me, let me show you. Let me give you a seminar. You don't need anyone to do that because the Holy Spirit produces a natural overflow of praise from your lips and in your hearts. You want to know when a church is being biblical and conducts itself with reverent worship, when you come in here and you can't help but worship God. I think music is a vital part of that. You know, Paul commands us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and I believe that must be done with quality. That must be done with excellence. And of all the churches I've ever pastored, it is done with excellence here. That's with the music portion Then we come to the Word of God, we've been prepared, and now we worship Him as we hear the blessings of justification. How can you not praise God in an environment like that? Take the smoke machines out, take the electric guitars out, take all the other carnal things that people say, this is what you really need in worship to have true worship. No, it's the simplicity of the preach word, the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs. I'm not ready to give up these great hymns of the faith. I'm glad we have a Psalter, but I'm not ready to give up the great hymns of the faith. I I love to sing of the, the poetry written by those gifted to express in poetic ways the glories of God, and we have that in the hymns of grace. We have that in the hymnal that we provide and in the Psalter as well. When we started the church, we didn't have many rules. One of the rules were will only sing out of a hymnal. You may come with um, praise and worship on your mind from songs of um, the radio. That's fine, listen to it in your car, but when we come here, we want reverent worship. And the history of this church is built upon reverent worship. Because you know what? I know the fact, when I go and visit other churches, there is scarcely reverent worship anywhere. 
So if our church can provide that, we're doing 90% of what we're supposed to do and what we're commanded to do. This access before God frees us to worship Him rightly and simply. It is a natural expression of our love and devotion to God. See, folks, these are the blessings of justification. This is immensely practical. What are the blessings flowing from justification? Number one, we have peace with God. Number two, we have access before God. Number three, we have the hope of the glory of God. Notice the second half of verse 2. And we rejoice, Paul says, in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, Christian hope, Elpis, it's not wishful thinking when we don't know the outcome of something. Wishful thinking about the weather, wishful thinking about a diagnosis. No, the Christian hope rests on the certain promises of God. It is our blessed hope. And the object of Christian hope, the thing above all which our eyes of faith are fixed, is what Paul calls here in verse 2, the glory of God. And notice how Paul says it's a fact for a Christian. This blessing you have, he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's something we do naturally. We focus on the glory of God. What is the glory of God? John Stott defines it as his radiant splendor, which will in the end be fully displayed. So we have the blessing of the hope of the glory of God, the hope of the radiant splendor of the full display of God's glory, of which we've only received a fraction. And what does this glory of God include? Well, first of all, it includes the glory of His appearance. The glory of His appearance, the glory of His second coming. Revelation chapter 21. I know you're familiar with it, but turn over to Revelation chapter 21. It speaks about this glory to come. Verse number 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of God, the dwelling Shekinah glory of God, will forever be with His people at a second coming. A bride adorned for her husband. As the Bible says, you know, in our culture, we think of the beauty and the symbolism of a wife or a bride giving up her name and taking her groom's name. And that's always my favorite part of the ceremony when I now pronounce for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. But have you ever thought about the fact that the beauty of the groom giving his name to the bride is just as beautiful? That he's giving his name to her? Because he's making a declaration that she is mine and I am one flesh with her. And see, Christianity, generally speaking, is not about us, the bride, giving ourselves to Christ. It's about the bridegroom giving himself to us. Giving us his name. Making us his people. God gives his glory to his people. Psalm 19, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. We sang about it this morning, Isaiah 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The incarnate Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us and we beheld His glory. Titus 2, 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. Hope in the glory of Christ's appearance. At the end of time. But secondly, 
our hope is not only in the glory of His appearance, but also in the glory of our appearance. We won't just see His glory, we will be changed into His glory. First John is a wonderful passage, First John chapter 3, that describes the glory this way. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him just as He is. Justification is instantaneous. We are declared righteous. But sanctification involves the full reception of that glory when we see Him. Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. In glory. In Romans 8.17, Paul says, we will be glorified with Him. In Romans 8.29, it says, we will be conformed to the image of His Son. The glory of the Son will be ours. Why? Because we fell short of His glory. Romans 3.21 or 3.23 The likeness of His image was marred, but someday the likeness of His image will be restored. Blessing of justification. One of the blessings is the hope of the glory of His appearance. And secondly, the glory of our appearance. And third, the glory of the world's appearance. We oftentimes don't think about this, but we do sing about it. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget. Romans 8.21 The groans of creation liberate creation from its bondage we read about it in revelation 21 the renewed universe the new heavens and new earth infused with the radiant light and splendor of god's glory this is what we have to look forward to a renewed world not just renewed souls the full glory of god within us renewed bodies but a renewed world and i read about it earlier in exodus 29 Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. I will dwell among them. My glory will dwell among them. Revelation 21, I will come down and dwell among them in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our hope. That the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This renewed universe. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. When I... um, scan on my phone social media and see just the ridiculous nature of politics i see the decadence of society i have hope that the universe will be renewed let me quote to you second thessalonians when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you and it was believed To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of Jesus our Lord would be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. My great hope for Christians is the same hope I have for the world. My great hope for this church is generational that to this end, we always pray for one another that our calling is worthy, that God fulfills every resolve and every good work of faith with His power so that others see His glory within us. Because here's the reality, folks. His glory is going to be seen one way or another. 
Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord before His glory. And what will cause us to continue to glorify Him in eternity only if we know Christ, only if we've been justified, we are to show the world this glory. We set our hope on the glory of His appearance, the glory of our appearance, the glory of the world's appearance, a renewed earth. This is um, past, present, and future. Have you noticed that this morning? Peace with God. You have been justified. That's past. You've been forgiven. We have peace with God. Present. We're standing in His grace. Present. It's past. It's present. And it's future. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God. The glories of His gospel. The glories of justification. The glories of sanctification. The glories of glorification the glories of His return, the glories of the eternal state, the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. How in the world do you get through life without having the hope of the glory of God? Paul is saying, look, this is all yours now. You have peace with God. You have access before God. You have the hope of the glory of God. Samuel Rutherford, a 17th century Scottish covenanter, lived during a time when the Church of England, his quote-unquote Protestant brethren, were persecuting other Protestants, like this man, Samuel Rutherford. He was a man who had the hope of glory and lived it out. The story is told he was lying on his deathbed. When he was summoned by the King of England to come to London on trial for his life. Why? Because he cherished the biblical truths that you and I cherish and he didn't want to follow the book of common prayer and he didn't want people telling him how to worship and he didn't want people telling him what sermons to preach. Knowing that he was already going to die, he sent a message back to the king through the king's messenger. This is what it said. Go and tell your master, the king, that I have another summons from a higher court and whenever this message reaches your king, I'll be where few kings will ever go. And that is heaven. Incidentally, Anne Cousin arranged some hymns based on the letters of Samuel Rutherford, indicating his hope of glory and ours. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, But on His pierced hand, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. That's our hope. That's our blessed hope in Christ. You can't get to heaven apart from Christ. You can't have peace apart from Christ. You don't have access to God without Christ. You're an enemy of Christ. You're hostile to Him. And it's not just you He's on the offensive against you. He has unleashed His holy wrath. It's only the blood of Christ that pleads our case. We've been charged guilty. Everything about us, we're depraved and thought, word, and deed. And it's nothing we do. It's appropriated by faith. We're declared righteous. We receive that standing through faith. And we receive all of these blessings, peace with God, access before God, the hope of the glory of God. Why? Because of one single act, the sacrifice of God's beloved Son at the cross. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Because we want to be reminded in a visible and a tangible way of God's expression of love to us 
and the peace we have with God because of Jesus Christ. Praise be to his name. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.